It was November 22, 1990, and the atmosphere inside the Hartford Civic Center was festive and upbeat. The 16,000 fans inside chose to spend Thanksgiving night attending the World Wrestling Federation's annual fall pay-per-view, Survivor Series. Gorilla Monsoon welcomed a pay-per-view audience freshly removed from the traditional turkey dinner for a night of action and excitement only the World Wrestling Federation could offer. Welcome to the jam-packed Hartford Civic Center in Hartford, Connecticut! Welcome to the Thanksgiving night tradition! Welcome to the Survivor Series! The Survivor Series was an event unlike any other on the WWF's calendar. Aside from the holiday atmosphere, the show's format was specifically designed around tag team elimination matches. It was a clever opportunity to book most of the promotion's roster on one show and advance multiple storylines and rivalries within the creative structure of just a few matches. Second only to WrestleMania in longevity, the Survivor Series dates back to 1987 and played host to a number of integral angles during the promotion's influential boom. In the inaugural event, Andre the Giant was the sole survivor in the main event that pit his team against a team captained by Hulk Hogan. In 88, Hogan and Randy Savage stood tall as the Mega Powers, an alliance subtly marching toward a major explosion. The 89 Survivor Series was highlighted by the second confrontation between Hulk Hogan and Zeus, and a long-running story that attempted to leverage the movie No Holds Barred into a real-life draw. The 1990 edition of the Survivor Series was poised to continue the tradition of exciting and memorable moments. A new wrinkle was introduced that year, called the Grand Finale Match of Survival. All survivors from the night's matches would be split into two teams, where they would compete in a bonus match under the same elimination rules. Then there was the giant egg promised to hatch. The supersized egg showed up at live events in the weeks leading up to the pay-per-view, with little explanation and endless speculation. Who or what was going to break through that shell? The contents of the egg wasn't the only mystery at the 1990 Survivor Series. Ted DiBiase's million-dollar team was one man short heading into their match against the team captained by Dusty Rhodes. A mystery partner to be announced at the show would round out the four-man heel team. <laughs> DiBiase's familiar theme song sounded over the booze of the crowd as he walked confidently down the aisle. Waiting in the ring were the balance of his team, the Honky Tonk Man and Greg Valentine, along with the opposing team comprised of Rhodes, Bret Hart, Jim Neidhart, and Coco Beware. The Million Dollar Man was dripping with arrogance as he relished the short walk down the aisle as the only man to know the identity of the mystery partner. The arena lights reflected off the diamonds on the gaudy Million Dollar Championship around his waist as DiBiase's manservant, Virgil, walked briskly in front of him. Once in the ring, DiBiase got right to the point. All eyes were on the blue carpeted entryway as a man in black crept from behind the curtain. The ominous sound of an organ playing a funeral march echoed throughout the arena as the Undertaker slowly marched toward the ring. You didn't need to know what an Undertaker was or what they did to get the reference. The pale man dressed in a western mortician motif with a lifeless stare and purple bags under his eyes told the whole story. Standing before the fans, the pay-per-view audience, and the performers in the ring was the newest creation from the mind of Vince McMahon. A chilling new heel to add to the roster of larger-than-life characters and over-the-top gimmicks. 
The startling entrance appeared to have the desired effect on the live crowd. Children looked nervously toward their parents, and the adults in the crowd couldn't take their eyes off the monster of a man in front of them. In the ring, the Dream Team huddled in their corner as they tried to make sense of who it was they were about to compete against. The Undertaker stood motionless in his corner, waiting for someone to dare challenge him. Finally, Bret Hart stepped forward. The excellence of Execution's bravery was rewarded with a chokeslam that stopped him in his tracks. Hart regrouped and tagged Jim Neidhart. The other half of the Hart Foundation had the same luck. The Undertaker hoisted the bullish anvil up with ease and tossed him back toward the babyface corner. The cold expression on his face never changed as Neidhart tagged Coco Beware. The Birdman fearlessly charged his mysterious opponent, but The Undertaker effortlessly tossed him out of the way. Ware bounced off the ropes before being spun upside down in The Undertaker's grasp. The Undertaker sent Ware crashing down headfirst into the mat. Ted DiBiase's maniacal laugh accompanied the sound of the referee's hand striking the mat. A tombstone pile driver earned the first elimination for the Million Dollar Team. The Undertaker had dominated three-fourths of the Dream Team without as much as breaking a sweat. Later in the match, The Undertaker would dominate Dusty Rhodes in similar fashion. Luckily for those still in the match, The Undertaker would be counted out as he pummeled Rhodes on the outside of the ring. That small taste of this frightening new character was only the beginning. The Undertaker would slowly become integrated into the WWF's television product and develop into an unbeatable monster heel. Twelve months after his startling debut, The Undertaker would return to the Survivor Series stage, but that appearance would carry the weight of much higher stakes. The irresistible life force of the pro wrestling world, Hulkamania, was put up against the unrelenting evil of the dark side. It was a challenge like no other for Hulk Hogan, against a force never before experienced in the World Wrestling Federation. And when the dust settled on the epic encounter, a new star was born, one that would break the rules of reality and introduce fantasy-based storytelling to pro wrestling in a way that would change the industry forever. From Wrestling With Art, my name is Barry Hess, and this is The Gravest Challenge. I don't know anyone that strikes fear in your heart immediately quite like this man. The Wrestling With Art podcast is distributed by Anchor, powered by Spotify. Visit anchor.fm slash wrestlingwithart to find episode listings, learn more about the show, 
and send feedback on this episode and others. You can donate to the show using the support tab on the homepage. Help fund the hours of research, writing, and editing it takes to produce the show with a donation as small as 99 cents. That's anchor.fm slash wrestlingwithart. A grim new character made his WWF debut at the 1990 Survivor Series, and the important first impression was a success. The live crowd couldn't take their eyes off the captivating man in black and his dominating presence that made it clear he was a formidable monster heel. The Undertaker certainly wasn't the first monster heel in Vince McMahon's World Wrestling Federation. Aside from Andre the Giant, the ultimate monster heel, a barbarian, a one-man gang, and a walking earthquake all wreaked havoc on the roster before The Undertaker showed up. But those were monster heels defined by size. At 6 foot 10 and over 300 pounds, The Undertaker had plenty of size. But he wasn't just physically intimidating, he was psychologically intimidating as well. Leveraging the macabre imagery of death and funerals, The Undertaker was a living horror movie villain, a creepy combination of the tall man from the movie Phantasm and Michael Myers from Halloween. The eerie Funeral March theme song was the perfect accompaniment to set the tone before an Undertaker match. The ominous gongs signified his pending arrival and instantly changed the mood of the audience. The shrieking pipe organ notes brought with them a sense of impending doom just like the classic horror films. But pro wrestling isn't a movie. Wrestlers don't tell stories for a camera on a closed set. They perform in front of a live audience. If the audience was going to react to The Undertaker like a real-life horror monster, the man playing the character would have to convince them of it. Mark Calloway did precisely that. In an era that is primarily defined by many endearing but silly characters, Calloway chose to play the Undertaker character straight. The gimmick may have been over the top, but Calloway's portrayal was focused and disciplined. He wasn't loud and scary like a cartoonish ghoul. He was morose and forceful. Like a method actor refusing to break character, Calloway became one with the role. His commitment left little room between reality and fiction. He forced the audience to take it seriously. From his methodical walk down the aisle, to the intimidating presence he commanded in the ring, it all set the proper tone for the character. His in-ring repertoire was equally meticulous. The Undertaker was slow and stalking with quick bursts of physicality when you least expected it. The cat-and-mouse type style kept the audience on its toes and added a sense of unpredictability to his matches. Spots like walking across the top rope or launching himself for a flying clothesline highlighted some of the impressive athleticism Calloway possessed. But an Undertaker match was rooted in spectacle, not athletic competition. The moves were less important than how the man performing the moves made you feel. In the weeks after his Survivor Series debut, The Undertaker was highlighted in quick squash matches on episodes of Superstars of Wrestling and Wrestling Challenge. He made his cinematic entrance, stalked an unsuspecting jobber, and struck. A tombstone pile driver capped the proceedings before an awestruck crowd and it was over, just like that. The squash matches reinforced the monster heel gimmick and allowed the television announcers to sell the frightening and mysterious aspects of the character. 
This protective formula revealed the Undertaker to the audience in small doses, purposely limiting his exposure to keep the crowd wanting more as the character developed. This pitch-perfect presentation and Calloway's keen creative choices were integral aspects to selling the character. So was the dynamic between The Undertaker and his manager. Ted DiBiase may have introduced The Undertaker to the WWF audience, but his manager was actually Brother Love, a conniving Southern televangelist character. Prior to The Undertaker's debut, Brother Love's role was that of a meddling heel. With large, round glasses and a disingenuous grin of a snake oil salesman, Brother Love was as sleazy and crooked as they came. His recurring interview segment, The Brother Love Show, regularly served as a catalyst for important angles and storylines mainly designed to create heat for other heels. Brother Love was the polar opposite of The Undertaker in every way. He wore a white suit and bright red shirts that matched the artificial tone of his skin. His hands were covered with glittering jewelry and he was loud and obnoxious. In all my years covering this great sport, Brother Love, I have never seen a man like this man, The Undertaker, have such a, a sudden impact on the World Wrestling Federation. Well, you know something, brother, mean? Like the old saying goes, you ain't seen nothing yet. But what you have seen are a few plots dug here and a few plots dug there. You've seen The Undertaker deliver a tombstone to some unfortunate souls. But the best, the best is yet to come. Take a look at The Undertaker. Does he look like he has any friends? Does he look like he needs any friends to win? 30 men may go in. 29 I'll bury. And as I look down upon their now rotting faces, their bluing flesh for me to hold, I'll embalm them. I'll sew their eyelids shut. I'll open their insides. And I'll steal the gold from their teeth. There will be no resting in peace. There is no peace in the Undertaker's mortuary. The exaggerated differences between Brother Love and The Undertaker helped further enhance the darker elements of the character. The pairing also afforded The Undertaker a useful mouthpiece, someone who could do most of the talking in interviews and promos, another clever tool to protect the mystique of the character. Brother Love would shout and carry on about ringside as The Undertaker destroyed a poor jobber in the ring. When the match was over, Brother Love would take the red rose pinned to his lapel and give it to The Undertaker to scatter across his fallen prey. Love was a natural heat magnet, a desirable quality for a heel manager. But The Undertaker didn't need heat, at least not in the traditional sense. The psychological nature of the character required the audience to fear him more than hate him. The fans yelling and booing wasn't the image McMahon was going for. He wanted that nervous hush that swept across the arena. Brother Love didn't add anything to the frightful aspect of The Undertaker's gimmick. And so in February of 1991, Brother Love introduced a man he secured to take over as The Undertaker's manager. It was a clean transfer that required little creative explanation. 
but one that carried with it significant implications for the future. Paul Bearer was a character much more in line with the macabre aura around The Undertaker. The portly manager looked like a disturbed funeral director right out of central casting. He had jet black hair, baggy eyes, and a pale complexion. He snarled at the camera with a creepy stare and spoke in a ghostly tone. Like Brother Love, Paul Bearer served as an over-the-top mouthpiece, but he could advance the theme of the gimmick through his character where Brother Love could not. Undertaker, I've been sitting all alone in the darkness of my funeral home, thinking about mass burials, all the mass burials gone through history. I wish I could have been there, but there's one, there's one ahead that I will attend. Oh, yes, 29 bodies, 29 souls, and you, Undertaker, can present them to me one by one. My sole purpose in this lifeless world is to collect the souls of the unfortunate people they cross me. Coming soon, there will be 29 bodies at my feet. And I'll stand alone at the top. Paul Bearer's introduction came at an important time. It was just weeks before WrestleMania 7, and it would be The Undertaker's first performance on the most high-profile show of the year. After months of squashing jobbers on TV and taking them away in body bags, Jimmy Snuka would be The Undertaker's most noteworthy opponent since he first stepped into the ring at the Survivor Series. With WrestleMania approaching, the supernatural elements of The Undertaker's gimmick began to take a more prominent role in his presentation. Perhaps he wasn't just an intimidating monster of a man with an affinity for the mortuary sciences. Perhaps there was an inhuman element behind The Undertaker's power, something otherworldly that drove him to be so cold and unforgiving. Whatever dark power it was that controlled The Undertaker, that force was harnessed by Paul Bear in the form of an urn he carried with him. Bear would direct the urn as he wanted The Undertaker to go, and The Undertaker followed in perfect step. The match at WrestleMania 7 proved to be more in line with the television squash matches than anyone would have thought. The Undertaker hardly sold any of the Superfly's attempts at offense. When Snuka desperately leapt toward his imposing opponent, The Undertaker simply sideswiped him out of the way and sent him crashing over the top rope onto the floor. After collecting himself on the outside, Snuka slingshotted himself from the ring apron back into the ring, but the agile attack backfired. The Undertaker caught him as if he were weightless. After he caught Snuka out of midair, the fans began to stir from their seats. They knew what was coming before Snuka did. The Undertaker whipped Superfly upside down and delivered an emphatic tombstone. After just four minutes, it was all over. Superfly Snuka dominated like this. Manhandled is the word you're looking for? No. Superfly with a headbutt. That sort of got the big guy's attention. But he doesn't really have his attention. He can't. He won't. He doesn't go down. Superfly underneath that one. Whoa! Holy mackerel. He was 10 foot high. Wow. Slingshot. Oh, nice, but wow. Look at the strength of this man! What a power move by The Undertaker! 
WrestleMania and Jimmy Snuka in the rearview mirror, The Undertaker set his sights on someone closer in vicinity to the main event as his next victim, the Ultimate Warrior. The Warrior survived a career life and death situation at WrestleMania when he beat Randy Savage in a retirement match. But when he found himself a guest in Paul Bear's funeral parlor, he quickly found himself in a situation with real life and death implications. Like the Brother Love Show, the Funeral Parlor was an interview segment designed to advance storylines on TV. The warrior entered the parlor to answer a challenge laid down by Bearer, but in reality, he was walking into a well-laid trap. As the warrior argued with Bearer, the Undertaker crept out of one of the standing caskets that appeared to be part of the set and attacked the former WWF champion from behind. Using an urn to the back of the warrior's head, the Undertaker knocked Warrior out before stuffing him into a custom casket decorated with the Warriors' insignia. Paul Bear locked the airtight casket shut and hurried off the set with The Undertaker following close behind him. WWF officials were left scrambling as they failed to break the casket open for several minutes. When they finally broke the lid open, they saw an unconscious warrior laying still inside. The fabric on the inside of the casket had been torn away, the result of Warriors' failed attempt to claw his way out. Officials administered CPR before the warrior slowly started to come to. Look at this. Can't blame him for that. Look at him, little warriors. He's scared. You're scared. I see it in your eyes. You're scared. The bloodshot look in my eyes. Mr. Paul Bear has been misinterpreted as the fear you know. You might say that you're not scared. Undertaker, all over the Ultimate Warrior. What a 
I think they're going to try to put him. He's going to try to put him in the casket. No. no. They're burying him. They're saying he's finished. Get out of there. Get out of there. Warriors fighting. He's not going to let him. He's not going to let him. Undertaker hammering down in there. They're trying to get him in there. Put him in there, Undertaker. I remember WrestleMania 7. Put him in there. Keep a foot up. Keep a foot up, Warriors. You can do it. Not in there. Not in that. Not in that casket. Right there, he did it. Yeah, he did it. Right there. Wait a minute, look he's, at the crank. He's, he's cranking. He's locking it. Wait a second. No. He's, how, how, how's he going to breathe in there? Wait a minute. How's... They're not going to... How did no. He's got the key. Okay, you proved your point now. Let Where him do we out. go from here? Huh? Let him out. You got your point. He's beat up. Let him out and beat him up some more is what I would do. Somebody better get some help down there. As you brought out earlier, those things are airtight. They're watertight. Get hey, him out of there. Where's the official? Wait a second. All right, we got a crowbar. All right, they know to do it. Right. get it, boys. That guy's been in there 45 seconds so far. That's airtight. I've done a lot of things in my career going past the danger zone, but this is uh, something different, and they need to get him out of there, and they need to get him out of there now. They can't get the cut. They can't get it open. Well, they can't on. get that casket open. You've got to break the seal on it. This is not That's my what you style. That's you have to do right in order to get the air in there. You've got to break the seal. You've got to get in there somehow. Give the man some air. I'm moving too slow. I don't like it. Get the chisel down where they locked it. Right there. At the end. They don't know what happened. We're talking a minute and 45 seconds he's been in there. The I think it, you can't even penetrate it with a drill. You can't. Come on. Get in there. Get them out. Somebody Come beat on. up Paul Beer and get the key back. That's what you need to do. You need to get, get the key. There. They're trying to drill hey. some holes in to get some air into the casket. This, this is getting ridiculous. They're trying everything they possibly can do. Find out together. There's a puncher there. They punctured. Maybe there's a little bit of air to get in there somehow. Tell you, I can't stand this. I got claustrophobia and I can't stand it. I just can't stand it. That, that ain't enough air to, to keep an ant alive. You're up to four, six stooges down. I didn't expect this one time. I didn't know. You know that's the guy. They're giving him. They got to get him going. CPR. Yeah. Giving him, trying to get him going. Just do it. You know, <laughs> the end of my career, but not this, not this way. I don't like it. It's wrong. It's not the way. It's not my way. It's not anybody's way. It's too much. The mouth to mouth. They're giving him the CPR. Help is on its way. Professional help, I can tell you that. But when are they ever going to get here? When is the professional help ever going to get here? It's already been too late. Uh, he's, he's stopped breathing. <laughs> I don't know if his leg's moving right there, or if they're just no, pushing him hard. They're just pushing him. Wait a minute. He is, he he's coughing. Okay, come on. He's coughing. Yes. He's moving. 
He just moved his elbow and his arm. Okay, he's coming around. That's better. That's better. I'm going for this right here because I want him out of there. Ultimate Warrior. Just raised it's his head. Coffin. Yes. Oh my God! What an ordeal. I'll tell you, that's never a... in the history of the World Wrestling Federation. Look at, look at the way he tried to claw his way out of that coffin. See the top of the The memorable segment kickstarted a feud between The Undertaker and The Ultimate Warrior that ran through the spring and much of the summer. It was The Undertaker's highest profile opponent to date, but outside of the funeral parlor angle, the feud played out strictly on the road. In July of 1991, the rivalry culminated with The Warrior earning a measure of revenge in a body bag match at Madison Square Garden, a precursor to the casket match. The only way to win was to incapacitate your opponent and lock him in a body bag. The warrior used The Undertaker's own urn against him to knock him out and stuff him inside the ominous body bag. The regular TV audience saw none of this, of course, and the loss to The Ultimate Warrior was never included in the promotion's official canon. As 1991 marched on, The Undertaker continued to be featured in squash matches on television, each one-sided victory furthering the narrative that he was an unstoppable monster. As summer turned to fall, it was time to cash in that character's equity for a main event storyline. Having already laid a former champion to rest, it was time for The Undertaker to go after the current champion and attempt to bring the WWF title to the dark side.
In less than a year, The Undertaker was successfully established as a dominant addition to the World Wrestling Federation's roster. He was an effective monster heel with an otherworldly persona. A timely change in manager rounded out the character's development. As the new act penetrated the mid-card, a familiar face was back at the main event scene and about to begin a grim path toward a grave challenge. Irish whip in the big boat! Now, now, put it on! It had been one year since Hulk Hogan was able to strap the World Wrestling Federation Championship around his waist. The road back to the title had been arduous, to say the least. After losing the title to the Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania VI, the Hulkster was temporarily put out of action by a disastrous encounter with Earthquake. With his title gone and his ribs broken, Hogan's trademark fighting spirit was put to the test like never before. But the will of the Hulkamaniacs wouldn't let Hogan fade away into retirement. He returned in the summer of 1990 with a renewed spirit and an appetite for revenge. Earthquake would ultimately pay the price for his attempt to squash Hulkamania, both literally and figuratively. In January of 1991, Hogan stood tall as the winner of the Royal Rumble match, his second Rumble win in a row. The win in 91 positioned him as the clear number one contender to Sergeant Slaughter, the new heel champion crowned at the same Royal Rumble pay-per-view. Hogan and Slaughter charted a collision course toward WrestleMania 7, and roughly 90 minutes after The Undertaker's lopsided victory over Jimmy Snuka, Hogan capped an inspirational, if not predictable, comeback with a victory in the main event. With the blood drawn from combat still in his eyes, Hogan rallied the fans inside the LA Memorial Sports Arena and proudly waved an American flag his righteous defeat of the former Marine turned Iraqi sympathizer complete. Hogan may have reclaimed the title for an unprecedented third time, but Sergeant Slaughter was hardly ready to wave the white flag of surrender. In a backstage angle taped for television after the match, Slaughter vowed to reclaim the title and threw a fireball in Hogan's eyes. The attack was a clever device to present Hogan as the chaser, in spite of his title win. Now Hogan was chasing revenge. With his eye heavily bandaged from the fireball, Hogan began a rigorous comeback campaign. As part of that crusade, Hogan appeared as a guest on Paul Bearer's funeral parlor a month after WrestleMania. The segment marked the first time Hogan was inserted into The Undertaker's orbit, even if it was only to further the story of the slaughter. Aware of The Undertaker's sneak attack of the Ultimate Warrior, a cautious Hulk Hogan carefully inspected the funeral parlor before turning his attention to Paul Bear. He opened the large wooden casket that served as the centerpiece for the spooky set. He even flipped open the tall casket standing in the background, the same one The Undertaker used as cover before attacking the warrior. But on this occasion, the coast was clear. The Undertaker was nowhere to be found, leaving the business at hand to rule the day. I feel fear, Paul! 
Hogan's appearance on the funeral parlor went off without any altercation with The Undertaker. The Hulkster was never one to back down from a fight, but The Undertaker's absence was a blessing for the newly crowned champ. He had plenty on his plate already. And as 1991 progressed, he'd have even more to deal with. But all the while, somewhere, the man from the dark side was looming and watching. Hogan's battle against Slaughter carried on through the summer. The feud culminated on pay-per-view at SummerSlam, when he and the Ultimate Warrior defeated Slaughter, Colonel Mustafa, otherwise known as the Iron Sheik, and General Adnan in a three-on-two match dubbed the Match Made in Hell. Slaughter was finally in the rear view, but there was no time for Hogan to lower his guard. The next threat to Hulkamania made himself known before SummerSlam was even off the air. Prior to the match made in hell, Bobby Heenan stood outside Hogan's locker room with a message and a symbol. The symbol was the NWA Heavyweight Championship, and the message was a challenge. A challenge from a man calling himself the real world's champion, Ric Flair. It was a monumental turn of events. The longtime face of the National Wrestling Alliance the only performer comparable to Hogan on a national stage was now under Vince McMahon's employ. As the autumn leaves began to fall, Ric Flair made his presence felt throughout the World Wrestling Federation. The years of comparisons and debates over who was the best in the industry could finally play out inside the ring. But the marquee matchup wasn't established right away. Instead, Flair spent his first few months in the WWF lingering on the sidelines. The Nature Boy needled at Hogan from a distance, using his trademark swagger to set the stage for an ultimate showdown. But with Flair looming and the Survivor Series pay-per-view just weeks away, Hogan was forced to turn his attention away from the potential showdown with the Nature Boy and toward the grave force that had been slowly building in the shadows over the past 12 months. 
for the first time since its inception, the Survivor Series would feature a one-on-one -on -one match. And not just any singles match. Hogan would defend his title against the man from the dark side in a match hyped as the gravest challenge. The Survivor Series, the Thanksgiving tradition, comes to you this year from Joe Louis Arena in downtown Detroit, Michigan on Thanksgiving Eve. Thanksgiving Eve this year, Wednesday night, November the 27th. As you know, the Survivor Series is the pay-per-view event where superstars team up in order to survive. Now, in addition, this year, the World Wrestling Federation Championship will be on the line in the main event when Hulk Hogan defends his title against The Undertaker in what is known as the Gravest Challenge. You know something, Undertaker and Paul Bearer? I'll give you your due, man. This is the gravest challenge Hulk Hogan and all my maniacs have ever had to face. But you're not dealing with a mere mortal man, and you know that. You're dealing with the immortality, the new generation, the life, the love of the big brother and all my little holsters. And when I think about you changing the destiny, the fate of all my little Hulkamaniacs. I picture a toddler in diapers. I picture a first grader with his lunchbox, his pad, and his pencil. Six feet under in a hole with you and Paul Bear laughing as you throw the dirt into their grave. It's not going to happen, Undertaker. Hulk Hogan stands for the truth, the light, and how do you cross on through to the other side? Don't put on the coffee. We're not staying long. We're just going to put the light of Hulkamania on you and then bury you six feet under. What you going to do when my maniacs close the coffin on you? With no backstory established prior to the announcement of the Gravest Challenge, the match was promoted strictly on the spectacle of the Undertaker character meeting the force of Hulkamania. One week before the pay-per-view, Hogan would return as a guest in Paul Bear's funeral parlor. But the circumstances surrounding the visit in November were much different than his first visit back in May. As a green fog engulfed the parlor set, Bear proudly presented Hogan with a custom casket made just for the Survivor Series. Complete with Hogan's logo, just as the disturbed manager had done for the Ultimate Warrior earlier that year. Hogan was outwardly cautious as he carefully inspected the area, looking for any sign of the Undertaker lying in wait. But before Hogan could ensure the coast was clear, Ric Flair walked onto the set. The Hulkster and the Nature Boy stood eye to eye for the first time as the forbidding pipe organ played in the background. It was a not-so-subtle reminder that Hogan had multiple flanks to defend at once. But the historic confrontation served a dual purpose. Flair's appearance distracted Hogan from sensing The Undertaker's arrival. Together, Flair and The Undertaker beat down the defenseless champion. The Undertaker's gloved hand wrapped tightly around Hogan's throat as he attempted to choke the last breath from Hogan's lungs. Unwilling to stand witness to a repeat of the Warriors' fate, Roddy Piper and Randy Savage rushed to Hogan's aid. Savage smacked The Undertaker with a steel chair but the menacing heel simply absorbed the blow and stood motionless over Hogan's body. The Hulkster very cautiously approaching what could be his casket. Oh yes, made of the finest materials on the 
You don't think the Undertaker could be in? Well, yes, I do. Expect the unexpected from your You're going to make sure. Just where you're going to be laying on Thanksgiving Day. Opening your own coffin. Hey. It's kind of creepy, guys. Wait a minute. In September of 1977, a rivalry between superstar Billy Graham 
and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes rocked the New York wrestling scene to its core. Billy Graham and Dusty Rhodes didn't just rewrite the rules to the game, they changed the game completely. Superstars of the Garden is the story of the two trailblazing performers that helped reshape an industry on the precipice of great change. Hear the tale of their three epic matches at Madison Square Garden, and how the two titans of wrestling history helped redefine babyface and heel roles forever. Listen to Episode 4 of the Wrestling With Art podcast, Superstars of the Garden, available now on all podcasting platforms. In November of 1991, The Undertaker was thrust into the main event as a monster heel challenger to the WWF Championship. His steady rise up the card coincided with Hogan's return to the main event scene. After 12 months of careful development, was The Undertaker being groomed to be yet another sacrifice at the altar of Hulkamania? Or was the immortality of Hulkamania about to be put into question for the first time? Since returning to the WWF, Hogan was faced with an unstoppable earthquake, a ruthless expatriate, and the man claiming to be the real world's champion. But at Survivor Series, he would have to leave all that behind him. The Undertaker was not an opponent to be taken lightly. He was a cold and heartless monster heel, determined to bury Hulkamania forever and steal the WWF title from Hogan's cold, dead hands. It was Thanksgiving Eve on November 27, 1991, and a nervous anticipation washed over the Joe Louis Arena in Detroit. Children sporting their Hulkamania gear struggled to look up from the floor as the threatening funeral march bellowed throughout the arena. The Undertaker walked by the custom casket placed at ringside and stepped into the ring without a hint of emotion. Paul Bear confidently raised the urn over his head as he accompanied his charge into battle. When it came time for Hogan to make his entrance, the fans forced themselves to snap free from The Undertaker's grim spell to cheer their hero. Hogan took a long look around the arena as he steadily made his way to the ring. He and his Hulkamaniacs had been here before. A seemingly unstoppable threat waiting in the ring, the deck stacked against the Hulkster, and the stakes never higher. And each and every time, Hogan approached the threat head-on, and with the power of his Hulkamaniacs behind him, overcame the challenge to stand victorious at the end. A fan in the crowd waved a sign that read, Hulkamania lives forever, as Hogan defiantly toppled the casket at ringside and hit the ring with his trademark intensity. The bell sounded, and the first WWF title defense in the five-year history of the Survivor Series was underway. Unlike Hogan's energetic entrance, the match began at a methodical pace. The Undertaker dictated the tempo and imposed his will on the champion. Paul Bearer snuck in what cheap shots he could as The Undertaker slowly choked Hogan and battered him with clubbing blows. Hogan absorbed the heavy offense and dished out some heavy-handed offense of his own, but the champion could not take The Undertaker off his feet. When Hogan clotheslined The Undertaker over the top rope, The Undertaker landed square on his feet and marched right toward Hogan without the slightest of hesitation. Paul Bear touted the power of the urn as The Undertaker smothered Hogan with his glove in the center of the ring. The action slowed to a snail's pace as the crowd chanted encouragement toward their hero. 
The Undertaker's eyes rolled into the back of his head as he continued to smother Hogan. Like so many times before, Hogan rallied. He forced his way back to his feet and separated himself from The Undertaker's grip. A running shoulder block knocked The Undertaker backward as Hogan looked to build momentum, but the rally was short-lived. Out of nowhere, The Undertaker bounced off the ropes and launched himself into the air toward Hogan. The rocket-like flying clothesline afforded The Undertaker the opportunity to hoist Hogan into position for the tombstone. Like many before him, Hogan crashed into the mat head first as The Undertaker drove him down with all the force of the dark side behind him. But unlike anyone before, Hogan bounced back up to his feet, seemingly impervious to the pain of the devastating pile driver. It was the sign the audience needed to truly believe. The crowd went nuts as the champion hulked up as he'd done so many times before and countered the Undertaker's strikes with swooping strikes of his own. When the Undertaker staggered down to one knee, the crowd upped its intensity to another level. For the first time in 12 months, the Undertaker appeared vulnerable. As Hogan motioned to the crowd, Ric Flair walked briskly down the aisle. Upon seeing the Nature Boy at ringside, Hogan hopped out of the ring and landed a punch to Flair's temple in order to circumvent any planned chicanery. With all the momentum on his side, Hogan rolled back into the ring and delivered a big boot that knocked The Undertaker flat on his back. Hogan moved in for his patented leg drop, but Paul Bear grabbed the Hulkster's legs to prevent him from doing so. The interruption was all The Undertaker needed to recover. As the referee turned his focus toward Bear, The Undertaker lifted Hogan up for another tombstone. Unable to free himself from the dead man's grip, Hogan was going down headfirst again, but this time he wouldn't land on the mat. Hogan's head would bounce off a steel chair slid into the ring by Ric Flair. Slick Rick slid the chair back out of the ring before the referee ever saw what happened. The Undertaker crossed Hogan's arms as the referee administered an uninterrupted three count. Amidst all the nefarious confusion, The Undertaker became just the second man to earn a pinfall victory over Hulk Hogan since 1984. The outside interference certainly allowed Hogan to leave Detroit creatively unscathed, but the sight of The Undertaker pinning Hogan and leaving the ring with the WWF title in his cold grasp instantly boosted the character from a mid-card monster heel to a prime-time main event player. Undertaker's title reign wouldn't last long. Hogan was granted a rematch by WWF President Jack Tunney six days later at an impromptu pay-per-view entitled This Tuesday in Texas. There, Hogan would steal the urn from Paul Bear and throw the ashes inside into the Undertaker's face before rolling him up for a pin. But Hogan's own breaking of the rules would come back to bite him. Displeased by the blatant cheating in both title matches, 
Tunney decided to strip Hogan of the title, and forced both he and The Undertaker to earn it back, along with 28 other superstars, at the Royal Rumble in January. Of course, neither Hogan nor The Undertaker would leave the Rumble with the Winged Eagle belt. That distinction would belong to the nature boy, Ric Flair. But the surprising turn of events on Thanksgiving Eve served as a launching pad for The Undertaker character. He wasn't just another heel to prop up, then cycle through the main event for one brief run. There was something more there, an intriguing fascination that drew the audience into the character. Soon, the ominous man from the dark side would transform into an unlikely fan favorite. He would venture further down the rabbit hole of gothic fantasy and develop into the phenom of the pro wrestling world. My name is Barry Hess, and this has been Wrestling With Art. Support the Wrestling With Art podcast by subscribing to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Leave the show a rating and review, and let us know your thoughts on this episode and others. You can follow the show on social media. Follow on Facebook, facebook.com slash wrestlingwithart, and follow me on Twitter at BFS171.